This is the Actors Diet Podcast, and today my guest is Lisa Ling. Lisa Ling is in the house, except she's not in the house at all. She's on the phone. But you know who she is. She's the award-winning TV journalist from The View, National Geographic Explorer, Oprah Winfrey Show. She currently has a CNN show, This Is Life, which is amazing, and I think you all should check it out. Even though Lisa is only a few years older than me, I feel like I've grown up watching her. Uh, She was on The View when I first graduated college, so she's a total inspiration to me, and I still can't believe that I got her on my podcast. Over the years, we've seen one another at various events, but this is our first time really taking time to chat, and at the end of it, I ask her a question for the Thick Dumpling Skin podcast, which is another podcast that I host now, along with Lisa Lee, not Lisa Ling, don't confuse the two, Lisa Lee. It's based on our website, thickdumplingskin.com. So if you enjoy listening to more body image eating disorder conversation, you can check that out on iTunes. All right, so let's start with Lisa before you became a television journalist, which was at the age of 16, by the way. Um, so let, let's go way back before then, like when you were a child, and what, what did your food... What did the food in your household look like back then? Well, my family was very, very strict about food. They didn't allow any sugar in the house at all. Um, My dad would even hide uh, salami because I would sneak it out of the refrigerator (laughs) and cut big chunks out of it. So he... Uh, he was very intent on us consuming healthy-seeming foods. I mean, it certainly included a lot of breads and things like that, but um, but sugar and high fats were were were, and and just things that were perceived to be unhealthy were not to be consumed by the little kids. So you know, we survived on Cheerios, which were pretty boring. <laughs> and all the other kids are eating Fruit Loops and Frosted Flakes and things like that. And we would always have the most boring lunches um, to take to school. Uh, we would have, you know, sandwiches on wheat bread with uh, like a piece of turkey and apple and apple. <laughs> and that's about it. And I would um, make deals with my friends at school. Um, like I would bring them a quarter or I'd, I'd literally bring them money. And th- this was when I was like in elementary school in exchange for their Oreo cookies or a bag of chips every now and then. Where did you get so that quarter? <laughs> what did you say? Where did you get that quarter? Um, my dad would leave money for me to buy milk. Um, and I inevitably would always use it on junk food that my friends possessed that I would procure from, from them for, for money. <laughs> so how was your relationship with junk food? Because I, I had a pretty similar upbringing and it sort of turned on me um, later on when I had more control over, you know, like after school I would go and get like an entire box of Entenmann's and just pound it before I got home. Like oh, it, yeah. it turned into that totally. for me. What was it like for you? I mean, when I was no longer under my dad's kind of control and my, my, my diet and the things that I ate were no longer under his control, I mean, I kind of went buck wild. And um, I started making money 
pretty early, as you suggested. As you said, I, I started working in TV when I was 16 um, for a, a local teen magazine show that eventually became nationally syndicated. And so I started making a decent amount of money for a 16-year-old pretty young. And even before that, um, I would um, be, a, be a hostess in, a, in an Italian restaurant over the summers when I was visiting my mom in L.A. And funny enough, they would leave me with the pastry chef during the day at the restaurant. And I was his guinea pig, and so I would come back to my hometown of Sacramento after spending the summer with my mom and working in this restaurant, probably about 10 pounds heavier, and the first thing my dad said once when he picked me up from the airport um, was, honey, you got fat. <laughs> um, and, you know, my dad never, you know, neither, neither of my parents ever put any pressure on me to um, watch my weight or anything like that. They're... Um, their desire to, um, you know, keep sugar and, and high fats away from us was really just so that we'd be healthy. It wasn't, you know, because they wanted to, us to, to be thin. Um, but anyway, so when I started making money, I, you know, would, would kind of indulge in the things that I didn't get an opportunity to eat. So I would also go and go to a donut shop and I'd buy six donuts and I would literally eat almost every single one in one sitting. Um, well, as, as you know, that can eventually lead to some things that, um, you know, became pretty dangerous. Um, and, and that's what happened to me pretty, pretty early on in my life. What, what, do you want to go further into what that was? What that looked like? Well, I would say that um, when I got into my kind of early 20s, I was then working for a show called Channel One News, which was seen in schools across the country. Uh, I was a reporter for that show, and, and it was a show that sent me all over the world to cover stories. Well, I, I you know, had been able to maintain pretty pretty good control over most things in my life. I am, con you know, I do consider myself to, to be a, you know, type A control freak kind of person, but... Um, my relationship to food was just completely out of whack, and I would, on many occasions when I'd be in a hotel, just, you know, like raid a minibar, like the entire contents of a minibar, or I'd go downstairs and I would, you know, buy, you know, four or five chocolate bars and ice cream cones uh, in in the, the hotel lobby store and just take them down, and there were occasions when I would purge that food. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't want to go as far as to say I was bulimic, because I didn't do it that often, um, but then one could say that because I did it at all, that would, that would you know, I'd be construed as, as bulimic, but I, I, I did feel like... Um, didn't happen as frequently as, you know, as, as it probably happened with, with a lot of other people. Did it sort of drift away um, or did you actually sort of nip it in the bud consciously? You know, I started to notice that my hair was falling out and my um, teeth were starting to feel very sensitive. Um, and I, I just noticed the impact that it had on different parts of my body, and so I would stop for long periods of time, and then, you know, I would do it again, but then I would stop for long periods of time, um, and at a certain point, you know, it, it actually, you know, continued for a while, but it just wasn't, it wasn't very regular. Um, you know, if I, if I drank any alcohol, 
that would, um, you know, after I turned 21, if I would have one glass of wine because I'm a pretty lightweight person, um, I might go on a binge and then purge. Um, and so that's why I don't really drink that much because I think, like a lot of people, um, after drinking alcohol, you just feel this compulsion to want to consume a lot of calories to absorb it all. Right, right. Did um, Let's go back to when your father told you you were fat. How did that make you feel? Oh, it made me feel terrible because I was a teenager. I was 14, 15 years old at the time, and that's probably the most impressionable time in a, in a young woman's life. So I, I always felt kind of like an outsider too. Even though I was a, you know, a fairly popular kid in school, I was one of the only Asians in school and I was constantly teased about being Asian, even by people I considered friends. You know, I, I was, I was called Risa Ring and, and, and every single day there were people, people who would taunt me about my ethnicity. So already I had um, a lot of insecurities about my cultural identity on top of the fact that, um, you know, we're so constantly bombarded with images of perfection, none of which include any images that look anything like me, a, a young Asian female. And so I felt like in order to kind of conform to that notion of perfection that included being pretty severe about what my body looked like. Did, um, so, so... When you stopped binging, how did your relationship with food evolve? Like, what did it look like that from then until where it is today? You know, I still am a pretty big lover of food, but I'm very cautious about the things that I eat. Um, I will try really hard to just not buy things that are are unhealthy. Um, but it's, you know, it's hard. And, you know, I, I think that because I rarely drink alcohol anymore, that's helped a lot. Not that I drank a lot, but, you know, when you're, when you're in your 20s and you're going out all the time and you're having a drink here and there, um, you know, it just is, 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 is a much more frequent thing that happens. But now that I'm in my 40s with a kid, I hardly ever, <laughs> ever drink, especially now that I'm pregnant. And so that kind of that that urge to binge happens, you know, hardly hardly never because I I, I I so rarely drink. Because of the because of the clarity of mind, you think? I think so. I mean, I just it's 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 dangerous behavior, and I recognize that. I mean, I recognized how destructive I was being to my body, and. As hard as it is sometimes, especially, you know, if, if I'm at a hotel and I, I you know, have had a, a drink, then I might want to raid that mini bar again. But I just, I just you know, use restraint. Um, but that, that kind of, you know, body image consciousness has never really gone away. And I think that, um, it, you know, what my dad said had an impact on me, but even more, the the you know, the, the impact that our culture and our reverence for skinny people and thin bodies has an, a far greater impact on women in this country, in, including me. I mean, you know, coming from that perspective of, of kind of feeling like an outsider as a kid and, and, and wanting desperately to kind of conform to whatever notion of beauty everyone else was conforming to, that that it's hard for that to ever go away. Um, and those notions of beauty are still the ones that exist 
today as an adult. Do you think your definition of what is beautiful today has shifted from your teenage ideals because you have I, more I examples today? Yeah, I definitely do just because I'm older and I, I have a much more profound respect for women in general, you know, what women look like, how women um, have decided to lead their lives. You know, I think a lot of it comes with maturity. Um, when you're young and you are, and I think now it's, it's actually worse because social media has made things, it, it, to me I call it um, like the worst like popularity contest magnified, high school popularity contest magnified. You know, in high school, all you care about is popularity and, and, and how many friends you have and who likes you. And now, you know, on all your social media outlets, you know, we become obsessed with how many likes we get or how many friends we have. And it's just like it, 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 it's this, this really, really vicious cycle that can, can, uh, continues to perpetuate itself. I mean, I'm as guilty as the next person for not posting really hideous pictures of myself. I mean, if you look at most of the pictures on my social media, I look, you know, fairly decent, kind of cute even, because those are the only pictures that I want the world to see. Well, that is, 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 is what our culture is about today. Yeah. But you also have a site um, for women that's the other side of things. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, about your secret society? Yeah. I mean, I had a, a miscarriage several years ago before I had my first child. And I felt, as, as someone who is a control freak, I felt like it was my fault. And I felt like I had done something wrong. And I was really... Um, I didn't want to talk to too many people about it because I felt so ashamed. But once I did start disclosing it to my friends and people I knew, I just came to realize how common miscarriages are. And so that propelled me to start thinking about the many things that women just kind of keep inside of them. I mean, Lynn, this is the first time I've ever talked about the fact that I've ever binged and purged in my in – my, I mean – I, I, I may have mentioned it to my husband once and my sister knows, but I've never talked about this publicly because um, I just, you know, it, it's something that I feel very ashamed of. And um, so we started this website, a, a colleague and friend of mine called SecretSocietyOfWomen.com, which is a platform for women to be able to share those things that they've been holding inside of them um, in a place where um, they hopefully won't be judged, where they can post anonymously and solicit advice and responses from other women. And it's been amazing how um, women have have really, I think, gravitated to it and appreciated just this anonymous forum that exists. That is incredible. Um, and thank you so much for your willingness to share with me. You know, I because I do so much of this work with body image and eating disorders, I know that it is something that's so common and something that people don't feel comfortable with. And so I really appreciate you talking about it. Um, let's Let's talk about something a little less serious. Shift <laughs> a gears later. a little well, bit. Before we do that, though, Lynn, I mean, you know, you, I have to, to applaud you for, you know, raising awareness about this so early on. I mean, it, 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 it has been very courageous of you, and, you know, if you hadn't talked about it, I probably wouldn't be talking about it right now, and I, I don't know how much I'm going to be talking about it because, again, it is such a source of shame because, um, you know, it's something that is, is – um, 
you know, it's an, it's an ugly thing that, that, that women and, and people do to themselves um, in their desire to look a certain way. And unfortunately, people don't talk about it. And I think we would be shocked to know the real numbers on how many people um, the disorder affects. I think we'd be completely, completely blown away if we, if we knew and if, if people were being honest about, you know, about, about their own situations. Thank you. You know, like, as you were saying, it's like we curate our lives so much online. The the side of us that we want people to see is not, you know, the side, like when you're feeling down and low on yourself, the last thing you want to do is be in contact with the world. And yeah, I mean, and you know, when I, when I was a host of The View, it's funny because I started The View and I was in my, I was about 25, 26 years old. And it's like every day, the staff would be on a different kind of diet. It's like all they ever talked about was this kind of diet or eating this way or so. So, so culturally, we become obsessed with how to be thin, but yet we get these conflicting, you know, messages about, you know, how good food is and, and so on. So it's a really, you know, it's a struggle that a lot of people, men and women, deal with but do so in secret. Yeah. How do you, how do you feel as though you have come to terms with that. How do you find that balance? Well, I, I do try really hard to not, um, you know, make my work about my, what I look like. Um, you know, my, my show, This Is Life on CNN, I, I, I explore different American subcultures, but it's important to me that I, I don't try to look overly sexy on my show. Um, even when I was on The View, I, I told the stylist, like, I never want to appear, like, sexy looking. I just want to be, I want people to listen to what I'm saying. It doesn't mean I, I shouldn't be stylish or I shouldn't be cool, but I want people to um, to appreciate my work for for what it is and not for what I for what I look like if that makes sense yeah and so um, I've tried to just um, do things that didn't um, propel me to kind of fall into that trap does that make me um, immune from it no not at all I mean I still deal with issues I think most people do but at least I'm, it's not something that I'm trying to flaunt. You know, I look at all these young women who are constantly, like, you know, flaunting their bodies and, you know, and, and they progressively start getting skinnier and skinnier. And how are people supposed to perceive that, you know? I mean, I just think it's, 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 it's kind of dangerous, but it also shows this kind of underlying insecurity that so many people have. Yeah. Do you feel like, because I feel like a common problem that's, happening right now on social media is that you have these very thin women who are posting photos of very indulgent foods. Right. Um, a lot of people criticize me about this because I'm often posting photos of donuts, but I'm also posting photos of kale. So, and, and also I make it, I've always made it very clear. I'm sometimes not even eating these things. I'm just right. taking a photo of it. Um, I'm wondering for you, how, how does your diet look? Like, do you, when you're posting photos, are you post, because you do post a few photos of food, I've noticed. Um, I, I don't, I don't post that many. Um, and the truth of the matter is that I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to seem indulgent. You 
know what I mean? I, right. I try to be really careful about the things I post, you know, not just not just about food, but you know, I'm a I'm a pretty simple person and I and I don't want people to think that I um lead a life that's that's that that's that different from the life I actually lead. I mean, I like to say that social media is the life that that you want people to think you live. Um and for a lot of women, I think, um, and, and, and I know a lot of these women who have serious issues about food, but seem to feel compelled to convey or to promote that they consume, right. <laughs> you know, really indulgent foods. I mean, I, I know a very well-known stylist right now. Um, most people know who she is, and she's, you know, she's one of the thinnest, most skeletal people I know, and she would cook these extravagant um, brunches and meals for people and invite tons of people over, but she wouldn't she wouldn't have a bite. Um, she'd eat like a carrot. Somehow I think there's a, a need for people to um, try to get other people to believe that they are not suffering with an eating disorder. Yeah, that does seem like a way that you can... I mean, back in the day when we were young and um and i was not allowed to eat quote unquote junk food um i remember i was really thin and that part of my eating disorder developed because i was sh- i wanted to show people like look how much how many entman's cookies i can eat you know that was part of it and um i don't know it's sort of like um this very personal thing of our diets becomes very public uh, not only through social media, but just in the act of sharing and eating with other people. Um, I'm sure you go through this with your family of when you're at a family gathering, if you don't eat the foods that everyone else is eating, there's a lot of pressure. There is. And I can't tell you how many times I've said to my family, oh, I, I already ate or, you know, I just ate a huge meal before that when I really didn't. I just didn't want to you know, indulge. I just didn't want to, you know, eat massive amounts that my family was preparing, you know. I think it's such a it's such a common thing that happens and um no one no one talks about it. And it's really it's really unfortunate. And so that's why like I said, I really applaud you for being so forthcoming about it because um it's it's a far more widespread problem than people talk about. Um, I have a very important question to ask you that I've been wondering about for years. Um, so you travel the world and often you are welcome into homes where the culture is different. And a lot of people always, you always hear how they're like, you can't say no. You know, they're offering you this dish that means so much to them and to their culture. And yet it looks absolutely, you know, disgusting. I'm wondering in that situation, how do you handle that? Because I don't know how I would. I always eat it. You always <laughs> eat it. When, when I'm in another country and um, people get very excited about their their you know cultural foods, or if they prepared something that they they're really excited about, as as difficult as it can be to swallow it, I always always will eat it. And, <laughs> Believe me, there have been things that I've consumed that I still have nightmares about. <laughs> um, but just out of deference and respect, um, I, 
um, and it's it's not an easy thing to do, but I always just kind of suck it up and do it. <laughs> that's hilarious. Because um, well, I just know where it comes from. And, you know, that's the thing about food is people take it so personally, especially food that, you know, is from your culture. You know, you, you're proud of it. You want people to enjoy it as much as you do. And, 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 and it, it's kind of a window into the culture. And so if you say no, especially if they've, you know, worked really hard to prepare it, it's like it's a slap in the face and it, and I, and it hurts them. I mean, I've seen this because I've had producers who have not, you know, not, not, not eaten what we've been given, and I can just see that it's just so disappointing for them. So, yeah, I always suck it up. <laughs> Do but in terms of portion sizes, are you just taking a bite if you don't like it, or are you still eating things that you don't like? Well, the good news about um, eating things around the world is the portions are never even remotely as big as the portions are in America. Okay. <laughs> so you can usually get by with, you know, eating most of it, but in actuality you're not, you haven't really eaten that much, you know, compared to the amounts that we consume in America. I mean, you know, I'm a fairly, you know, thinnish person, but anywhere I go in the world, I'm always still hungry because I'm so accustomed to eating massive portions. <laughs> And the rest of the world is not. Like when I first had a, my daughter, we had a, a nanny come in who would cook every now and then. And um, she would cook like like three dishes with one steak, like, like less than one steak. One time my husband bought steak for everyone, and she was appalled. She was like, you mean every single person is going to eat an entire piece of meat like this? Like she just was flabbergasted by the idea that we would eat, like, something so indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking right now at this photo of you and Paul, your husband, that you sent me of you guys eating uh, Korean nengmyeon. Nengmyeon, yeah, the cold noodles. So delicious. What is that? I've never had it. So um, Korean nengmyeon is, uh, it's, it's just cold noodles. Um, the broth is cold, um, and, and usually they're buckwheat noodles. The ones we like are buckwheat noodles. Um, there's a little piece of, of meat, some egg. Um, you put gochujang sauce and some, some spicy mustard, and it's just like such a refreshing, yummy treat. And I'll be honest with you, I don't eat a lot of carbs, but what since I had my first daughter, um, Nengman is always a, um, you know, it's it's like the one carb meal that I, I will consume. <laughs> I see, like, cucumbers in there? Or, or the, there are cucumbers. There's um, there's a Korean radish. Oh, okay. The, the like daikon? Kind of pickled radish. Okay. And where is this? Is this a homemade meal or is this? This is a homemade oh. meal. I don't cook at all. Um, but I'm really lucky that I have a husband and a mother-in-law and a mother who come over quite regularly to cook. Um, in fact, my mother-in-law and my mother come over almost every single day to hang out with us and our child. Um, my daughter is my my husband's mother's only grandchild, and she's 83 years old. So to say that she dotes on her would be a gross understatement. She's, <laughs> she's the apple of, of, of everyone's eye. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, is she excited about becoming a big sister? She is excited. She talks about it all the time, except for when I you know, ask her how she feels about sharing her toys and sharing her parents. I say, are you, are you going to share your toys? No. You're going to share mama and papa? No. <laughs> but otherwise, she's excited about it. <laughs> well, um, 
One last question. Um, I'm actually going to ask you the question that I will also play over at Thick Dumpling Skins podcast. Okay. Um, you know about the new Barbie dolls that came out? Yes, I do. That Mattel, Mattel has done where they've um, made them of different races, hair colors, even feet, uh, where they don't have to be wearing high heels, and most importantly, different body sizes. And... Um, yeah. and uh, why can't I think of the word for tall and short? What is that called? <laughs> height! Height! It's called height. Uh, Different height. heights. I was like, height? <laughs> <laughs> um, what would you want your Barbie doll to look like, the Lisa Ling Barbie doll, if Mattel offered one well, on the market? Would, would, would that be? Would that include the parts of you that are imperfect? Well, the Lisa Ling Barbie doll would definitely look nothing like the traditional Barbie doll in that um, my 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 features wouldn't be that exposed. You know, I I'm kind of a tomboyish dress, dresser by nature. Like I I'm I wear sweatpants or jeans and you know t-shirts. I I am a little bit of a rocker <laughs> um, in my style, but very very casual. Um, my eyes would be slanted, unlike most doll versions of Asians um, that have very, very rounded Western-looking eyes. Um, but it would definitely be just a much more casual, um, non-sexy kind of portrayal of me. <laughs> and would you buy it for your daughter? Um you know, I'm not a Barbie fan. I never have been because to me, Barbie has been a completely, you know, unfair and inaccurate, you know, uh, depiction of what a woman actually looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess this step to change the body image is in the right direction. But, um, you know, to me, they're still pretty, pretty perfect looking. Um, and so I'm not, I, I haven't been convinced <laughs> um, that I want to buy one for my, my daughter. Okay. Um, where can people find you, Lisa? So I host a show on CNN called This Is Life, and we're shooting our third season right now, and it will come back in the fall um, of this year. But if people want to check out season one, it's on Netflix, and I believe that season two will be launching on Netflix within the next couple of months. So um, it's, it's an amazing show that I'm incredibly proud of. I'm also an executive producer, and it's basically a an exploration of different American subcultures. So every week we take you to explore a world within our world that you may have heard about, you may even have an opinion about, but you don't really know too much about. Well, this is really great. I really appreciate you taking the time, and thank you for sharing, and good luck with everything. Thanks, Lynn. Sorry we got so serious, but, you know, it, it was a really great opportunity to talk about something that I think really, really plagues a lot of people. So thanks for giving me a chance to, to talk about it as well. I appreciate that.